Father, we pray for your insight, your understanding that we'd be able to walk away with something tangible, something that's like hard evidence that we can point to and say, this is to be avoided. We know that you desire that we know what is right and what is wrong and how we are to conduct ourselves. And you have given us this instruction through your word. So as the examples of people's lives go before us in these pages, we would ask that you would imbue us with that knowledge, that wisdom, to avoid that which is in error. We'll ask for your help in doing this and the guidance of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 24 of the book of Acts, where we're going to pick up in verse 1, we see a lawyer who goes by the name of Tertullus. He's using flattery in an attempt to sway Governor Felix to do his will. Now, I need to set this up for those who haven't been here for the past many weeks, almost a year, as we're going through the book of Acts. Paul was arrested. He spoke to the crowd of Jewish men. A riot breaks out. He's thrown in jail. The Jews conceive of a plot to murder Paul, the commander of the guard. He gets word of the plot and takes Paul during the next 24 hours to Governor Felix. Five days later, he appears before Governor Felix with Ananias, the high priest, and Tertullus, who is a professional attorney. Now, It says that in this first verse that we'll see, that they went down to Caesarea. Now, there's two Caesareas. There's Caesarea Maritima, which was the greatest building project of Herod. And then there is Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, there's a big hole in a cave that the cave goes deep inside the ground there. And they thought that that was the gates of hell. where they had this worship of false gods there, the god Pan, so to speak. Uh, He was worshipped there. But that's not the place where this trial is taking place. This trial is taking place in Caesarea Maritima, which we would have gone to. By the way, we would have left today. But uh, unfortunately, that's going to be put off for some time. So in Israel, Maritima is north of Jerusalem. Now, if I said... I'm going down to San Francisco. Would that make sense to you? You'd say, no, you're going up to San Francisco. Because north for us is up. And anything south of us is down. But in the scripture, you'll see in the first passage, it says he went down to Caesarea, which is 65 to 70 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So why would he say he's going down to Caesarea if it's to the north? It's because the elevation of Jerusalem is 2,500 feet, and the elevation of Caesarea is only about 45 feet. So everywhere around Jerusalem, you would be going down to no matter which direction you headed to, unless you went up to Mount Hermon, something like that. But all the cities were down. And so that can be a little confusing in the English when you read that and you go, what what do you mean he went down? And some people say, well, that's an error. There's an error in the scriptures. And there is no error in the scriptures. And then the people we're going to see here, again, Ananias, he is the former high priest. Now, if you remember, there's Ananias, which is called the high priest, and Caiaphas, who is also called the high priest. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Ananias. Ananias was deposed by the Romans because he wasn't a lackey. He was going to do his own thing, and he was a ruthless man. 
And he was traded out for Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who would do what the Romans wanted him to do. So there were two high priests. Normally, there's only one at a time, but there were two high priests at this time. Now, this is also not the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira. If you remember them, can you remember what chapter in Acts they were? Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, the church is created. People were selling their homes and they were selling land and they were taking the money and they were placing it at the feet of the apostles. And they said, this is given for the good of the other believers, those who are poor and are in need of help. And Ananias and Sapphira, they, uh, they had this deal between them that they're going to sell their property, say that they sold it, for a lesser amount and keep the money for themselves of the difference. And of course, when they did that, they were questioned by Peter, did you sell the property for this much? Yes, that's how much they sold it for. And of course, Sapphira, excuse me, Ananias, he went in there first and he dropped dead because he lied to the apostles. And in the Acts chapter five, it says, you not only lied to the Holy Spirit, but you lied to God, which means that's a deity verse for the Holy Spirit. And so it's not that Ananias. This is another Ananias. And this is not the Ananias who Paul met up with after his road to Damascus conversion. If you remember, Paul was on his way to Damascus to get Christians and prosecute them and persecute them, maybe even have them killed, brought up on trial. And as he went there, Jesus appeared to him, a bright shining light. Nobody saw the light, but they heard some sounds. They couldn't really distinguish what was going on. And from there, Paul was blinded. And so he was taken, and Ananias was given instruction to go see Paul. And, of course, Ananias would have been like, wait a second, this guy's trying to kill Christians. And I'm sure God assured him, go talk to him and restore his sight and show him how many things he must suffer. And that's what the message was that Ananias was supposed to give Paul. And so these two Ananiases are not the Ananias that is the high priest. Now, this particular high priest, he was just terrible. And sometimes he would collaborate with the Romans, but he was killed by a Jewish mob during the beginning of the Jewish-Roman War in 66 AD. He was hated by a lot of people. So he's one of the people we're going to see there. Then there's Tertullus. He is a professional orator and attorney. And he probably conducted his... Um, talk that was in front of the court in Latin because the Romans were Latin. They spoke Latin. If you come from Italy, Rome, Latin was a pervasive language. They conducted all government work, all government official proceedings in Latin. So this Tertullus would have been able to speak Latin. Now, what were the languages at the time? And this fascinates me. Like, how many languages do we know individually? I know one, English, and I know a second one, Spanglish. Uh, it's not quite full Spanish, but, you know, I, can, I speak enough to get by. It's more work Spanish, I guess. But back then, during the time of Jesus they would have had multiple languages that they would have had under the belt. Just like today, if you go to Europe, they usually speak two or three languages. In the time of Jesus, they would have spoken Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Now, they would have been familiar with all four. 
because the Romans were in control, they would have had to have known some type of Latin. The populace would have had to have known some type of Latin if you wanted to do anything with the government. But Greek was also the common language of the Roman Empire. That was there as well. And Paul definitely spoke Greek. He was a Roman citizen, and he was able to converse in Greek. And remember Luke? Uh, he was able to speak Greek as well, and there's some um, controversy, or as I heard the other day, uh, controversy, uh, controversy over whether Hebrews, the book of Hebrews was written by Paul, who would have written more than likely in Hebrew, and then Luke may have translated it to Greek, and that's why it doesn't line up quite the way Paul would be speaking. And so these these languages were pervasive everywhere. If you were in the synagogue, you would have spoken Hebrew. If you were praying, you would have prayed in Hebrew if you were a Jew. If you were a normal person, a non-Jew living in the area of Galilee or down in Israel, you would have spoken Aramaic. Now Jesus, we know, spoke Aramaic. We know he would have spoken Hebrew, but of course he is the author of all languages. He could have spoken any language he wanted to, but those were the languages that were necessary to conduct life. Here, we expect everybody to learn English, right? And when that doesn't happen, we get a little upset. Like, why don't you know English? This is America. Ha ha, patriot. And you have to be careful about that because we live in a world with a bunch of people. As believers, we can say, well, let me try to learn a little bit of your language and, you know, help you if you're here and you're a foreigner and you don't know, know much. That would be loving towards those who are strangers to us. But that sets up what we're looking at here in chapter 24, verse 1. Now, first you have this collation. You have Ananias, Tertullus, and they're, they're appearing before Governor Felix. It says, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down, there it is, to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. <clears throat> and then when Paul was called in, <clears throat> excuse me, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed, now pay attention to this right here, okay, everything that he says. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Now, what do you think that is? That is flattery. That, that's exactly what this is. And how do we know exactly that this is flattery? That Felix hasn't done all of these things that this uh, Tertullus is talking about? It says in verse 4, But in order not to worry you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Now, there's a companion to flattery, and it's a word I've used before, but it's a word that's usually not in our lexicon. It's called being obsequious. And you say, ab who? It, it's obsequious. Now, obsequious is being where you're fawningly servile, where you go before somebody and you just, oh, let me wipe your feet, you're so wonderful, that, that type of thing. So those two are companions, flattery and being obsequious so he points to at least Tertullus points to Felix and he talks about his ability to lead and keep the peace he calls him most excellent now most excellent in the English language would be known as a superlative 
A superlative is almost like hyperbole. It's where you're using a word to really go over the top. Like if we have the word great, that's wonderful. But if you have the word the greatest, that's a superlative. Or if it's funny, that's fine. Or if it's funniest, it's a superlative. You're going to the next level. Or if you say most excellent, you can say most beautiful. If you use the word most, that's also using superlative language. So he's going before Felix and saying, you are it. You are the goat. You guys know what goat means? Greatest of all time. That's what they use of, I think, Brady or somebody else, a football player. That's what he's doing to Felix. He's just fawning before him in a way that probably made Felix either feel uncomfortable or he took it all in. He said, yeah, you were right, and I'm glad you know it. Now, why did he do this? Why did Tertullus start out like this? Because Felix could have thrown him into prison on a whim without waste, if he started wasting his time. He could have just said, you're done. You're wasting my time. Take him away. He could have done that. That's how the authority worked back him, back then. Now, the Roman historian Tacit, excuse me, Tacitus, he described Felix as cruel, licentious, and base. To say it another way, he was not only cruel, he was immoral, and he was corrupt. He eventually ended up being accused by some Jews of corruption. He was found guilty, but he was allowed to keep his life. So this was the reputation that Felix had. Remember, he stole somebody's wife, Drusilla. It was a wife that he stole. And so this guy would use underhanded tactics all the time. And here's Tertullus saying, oh, you're so wonderful. You're so great. Let me, can I comb your hair or something? You know, he, that's how he was looking at him. And that's how he was addressing him. So this is flattery. And I want to focus a little bit on this for a moment. Now, flattery is not a compliment. And a compliment is not flattery. A compliment is an expression of appreciation. We say, Thank you so much. You know, that, that really helped. Or uh, a term I've heard a lot lately, just in passing with other people, I appreciate you. Thank you. That's a nice way of expressing gratitude. It's not over the top. You're just saying, you know, thanks in, in a different way. It's always honest and it's realistic. That's what a compliment is. And we should always be liberal with compliments. Not over the top, just liberal with them flattery is a manipulation tactic it's insincere there's excessive praise it's untrue it is exaggerated or an exaggerated compliment and it may give over excessive attention to the individual and that brings with it its own problems why is this flattery bad or wrong well first we have the word and the word tells us about love it, it lets us know some examples of compliments. It lets us know about flattery as well. First, flattery, it is a lie. It, if, if it's not an outright lie, it's an embellishment of the truth. Now, I think we all have engaged in embellishing behavior. When I first started teaching, I would tell some stories. And I remember those stories that I would tell. I would embellish just a little bit. Nobody ever told me anything about it, but the Lord came to me 
and it, I don't know how this happened, but he, he just said, stop it. Stop embellishing. I went, oh, okay. I'm going to stop. That was like in the first year of ministry. I'm just going to speak the truth. I'm not going to layer it over with other things to make it seem bigger than it is. And as Christians, we are to speak the truth directly, not abusively, but simply get to the heart of any matter, just speaking what is true. Secondly, it speaks of the impure motives of the one who uses it. The person who uses flattery, they want something Just like the young man, the single man who wants the prize, the girl. He wants something. And you can tell by his speech using the first person singular pronouns. I, me, my. And so the person wants to get something from you that is flattering you. Also, thirdly, it creates an imbalance personal view. If you start using flattery with somebody... Pretty soon they might start to believe it. They go, well, I am good looking. Yeah, just look at that chiseled face and, you know, the huge hair that I have up on top and the muscular build in the shoulders. I, I think I am. Or a woman could say, I am pretty, you know, and she'd look in the mirror. And, yes, I know. If I turn just right out, yeah. And we start to believe these things. Not that you're not handsome and pretty. It's just that if you start thinking that you are, remember, time catches up with all of us. And we're not so pretty anymore, you know, as you get older and older. Now, fourth, it puffs up those who receive it. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, it talks about knowledge puffing up. Have you ever run into somebody who's a know-it-all? And, and they say, oh, yeah, I know all about that. You don't need to explain that to me. I'm good. Or they tell you just by the floodgate of information, everything that they know about a particular subject, and you can find out everything you ever wanted to know and that you didn't want to know, and they give it to you at the same time. And so the individual might think of themselves more highly than they should. And we're all supposed to have a humble view of ourselves. <clears throat> you know, I've, I've said in the past, I've used to, I used to be a lot sharper in my mind. I, I can tell that it's slowing down. I've used the phrase, I used to be sharp as a tack, now I'm sharp as a marble or sharp as a marshmallow, you know, something like that. It's not as sharp and quick. You have to think a little harder, a little longer, and that happens to all of us. (laughs) Have you ever, you guys, walked into a room and said, why am I in here? Or have you looked for your keys and you're looking everywhere and they're in your hand? Something like that. It's just you're not as sharp as you used to be, and, and that's something that we have to live up to. But this idea of knowledge or hearing compliments, not just a compliment, but the flattery, it can puff us up and it can ruin our minds and set us in the wrong place. So those who use flattery, it is a companion, as I said previously, to obsequious. Now, flattery, it is a sin to engage in it. Job 32 verse 22 says, For if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. So there seems to be a judgment associated with the use of flattery where the Lord would come in and he would judge somebody who becomes a master at it. The Antichrist uses flattery to corrupt those who do not believe in God during the tribulation period. We know this from Daniel chapter 11 verse 32. With flattery, he will corrupt those 
who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. I believe this is more than likely speaking to the Jews who have violated the covenant. The Antichrist will deceive them and he will do so by the use of flattery. Flattery is used by self-absorbed grumblers and fault finders. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 through 18 says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the minds of naive people. How do you keep from being naive? You know the word. If you go through the word and you put it in practice, that will keep you and I from being naive. Jude chapter 1 verse 16. It says, these men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Hopefully, remember last week I told you that... um, little story how I first got deceived by that watch that wonderful watch in the little tissue you know it by flattery oh man all that don't show anybody that oh yeah this is really a nice watch we can be so easily deceived but guess what as you live longer and if you know the word the chances of being deceived become a lot less you don't have to worry about some telemarketer calling you up and robbing you of some bank account because you know already all the times that people have talked about being deceived, deceived by the telemarketers which are out there. So God's people should never use flattery. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, it talks about Paul. He gives his own personal testimony here. He says, you know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. And just as a parenthetical thought here, there are so many churches today which are abandoning the faith. They're going away from what true biblical doctrine is. And they're adopting the ways of the world. I've talked previously about this a little bit, whether it's the homosexual agenda and Andy Stanley and his church. Thousands of people go there. And I've heard um, testimonies and studies on this. Uh, and, And it's amazing how people are being deceived into thinking that this is okay or the DEI. Uh, that is out there or the intersectionality which is out there and the relating to the underprivileged and I, I read an article the other day that there were hate crimes being committed everywhere by white people by Asian people by black people but there's only one particular type of hate crime that's being focused on and there's being deception which is uh, perpetrated not only outside the church but inside the church as well And we need to be able to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. But people will come along and say, well, you want to be caring, don't you? You you want to be somebody who is loving, don't you? So this is the right way to go. And, And they may say something like, I know you've been loving in the past. I've seen you do it. That's flattery. That's exactly what that is. So we want to make sure we're standing on what proper and true doctrine is. And do not let somebody who is a false teacher come in and dissuade us 
from the proper path. And flattery destroys. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 28, it says, A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. So those who receive flattery, they are tested by it. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praises he receives. If somebody is talking about you and they list all your accomplishments, like if you're asked to speak and maybe say a few words somewhere and they give you this long list of, or they say this long list of accomplishments like a PhD and a master's and they've served on this board and been involved with this company and accomplished these things and been overseas, a man or a woman is tested by those things. Because do you believe it? Do you believe you're that good and that you're all that and and perfect? The Lord says we're tested by those not only compliments, but especially by flattery. Now, Jesus condemned those who received and took up the flatteries. These are this next passage here in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. It talks about the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews, how they ended up believing and desiring people talking to them in such a way that gave them compliments and flattery. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowd and to the disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They love excuse me, they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. What that means is, and we would have seen this if we went to Israel, you go to the Temple Mount area, the western wall, which is there, and there is a a guy behind a little booth, and he will ask you if you would like to put on some phylacteries. And the phylacteries are they're boxes, and depending on the size of the box, it could mean you're really spiritual if it's really big or really small. You're not so spiritual. I guess you can check. I don't know if they're all the same size now, but the Jews back then, they would have the big boxes. And what would they do with the boxes? They'd put them on the back of the hand right here, and there'd be leather straps. And those leather straps would be wrapped around the arm and go all the way up past the elbow. And the more straps you had, the bigger the box, the more spiritual you were. And then they also put one right here. Yeah, that's right. A box right here. And that has the word of God in it as well. And they wrap that with leather bands around the head. So if you go to the Western Wall and you see a man with a prayer shawl and he has this phylactery up here on his head and one on his arm and he's bowing before the wall, well, that man is obviously righteous. And so they made their phylacteries big and their tassels long. Now, in the Hebrew Roots Movement, they have tassels. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it's believers, quote-unquote, in Christ who think you need to keep the Old Testament. And the men were supposed to have tassels that go off of their belt line right here, and they kind of hang down. And the longer the tassel, the more spiritual the dude. And that's what they did. They, so they had these big phylacteries, and they wore these long tassels off their side. They would just kind of wave around everywhere, and it would give the impression like they are so spiritual. Well, going on with this, everything they do in verse 5 
is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and, and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have only one master and you are all brothers. So Jesus set this right. You get compliments, okay, receive the compliment. Don't let it affect you. If it's flattery, just say, talk to the hand. Remember that phrase? Talk to the hand. You're not even supposed to receive any kind of flattery whatsoever. And if you're really wise, God will give you the words to say, you know, please don't flatter me. That used to be used in movies all the time. Oh, you flatter me. Why? Because there's ulterior motives which are out there. Now, going back to the trial of Paul before Felix. In verse 5, it says, We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Now, what is a sect? S-E-C-T. In Judaism, there were different sects. There were the Essenes, there were the Pharisees, and there were the Sadducees. They all held to the law. They just interpreted the law a little bit different. If you remember from past messages, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in a spiritual world which is out there. The Pharisees not only believed in all those things, but they believed in the resurrection of the dead. And so they were at butting heads with each other. In Christendom, we have different sects in Christianity. For instance, there's Calvary Chapel, the one true way. Of course, we all know that. Then there's the Methodist. I'm just kidding. Then there's the Methodists and the Episcopalians and the Catholics and the Presbyterians and the Baptists. And there are more besides that. You have brethren churches, all kinds of churches which are out there. If you go to the Baptists and you say, well, what do you believe that's different from other churches? Like from the Catholic Church. Why is the Baptist Church the Baptist Church and the Catholic Church the Catholic Church? Well, the Baptists believe in total immersion in baptism. That's why they're called Baptists. You put them all the way under the water, get all the sin out and bring them all up, right? Because that's what Jesus did. He got baptized fully. That's why they had the Jordan River. The Catholics will say, no, just sprinkling will be fine. Then you go to some churches and they take the baby and traumatize the baby, dip it in this and carry it around and baby's crying, just bloody murder and say, stop, you know, some churches do that. They have different views. Why aren't we a Presbyterian church? Because we don't hold to the double predestination. We don't believe that God gave some people for eternal life and he created some people for eternal destruction. We don't believe that. So that's why we're not Reformed. That's why we're not Presbyterian. And there are Reformed Baptists and there are Reformed Presbyterian churches. So we have these different sects, these different beliefs. It's incumbent upon us to go to a church where we know what we believe and we hold most closely to the doctrines of the church that we attend. Now, does that mean you shouldn't go to another church like a Presbyterian church? If I was ever to move to a city and it was a good church, a Presbyterian church, but they held to that doctrine, which I believe is a pernicious doctrine, I'd still be in the fellowship of the saints. I would go there, but I would let it be known, not in a contentious way, that I don't hold to that doctrine because I believe they're still brothers and sisters like the church of Christ. Women can't cut their hair. They need to wear long dresses. If there's no other church, I would show up and fellowship with those brethren. I believe they're still 
in the body of Christ. But they hold these doctrines that I wouldn't hold to. And, and so those are the differences between sects, whether it's the Nazarene sect of Judaism or it's the Christian sect of the Baptist or the Presbyterians. Now, <clears throat> the references to Paul here, he's being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It is intended to disparage both what he is doing and the head of the sect of the Nazarenes, which is Jesus. Remember you know, the phrase <clears throat> from the book of John, chapter 1, verse 46, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, the answer is yes. The Messiah came from Nazareth. In verse 6, it says, and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. This is again referring to Paul. Now, verse 8 says, by examining, I don't have verse 7 here. God. You guys have an NIV? Now, this is one of those places in the NIV. If you have a Bible and it's the NIV, if you look at verse 7, it's not there in the text, but there will be a little letter and it's referenced down below. And it probably says something like, the earliest, most reliable manuscripts do not contain verse 7. All it means is when they were translating the NIV, they went way farther back than the King James or the New King James to get the interpretation of what the scripture should say. If you go to later versions or you go to what is known as the majority text, you get the King James from that. You get the New King James version from that. And in the back of my Bible, it shows you exactly how many Bibles come from that and verse 7 is included there. Some people will raise arms and just scream to high heaven saying, See? It's a false version. You shouldn't be reading that. No, it's footnoted. It's just saying that the earliest manuscripts do not contain that particular verse. And some overzealous scribe wrote that verse in. And there's one verse I can point to directly in the King James. It's 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 in the King James. The text, the original text says, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the spirit, the water, and the blood. But an overzealous scribe wrote in there, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is added in there. Everyone knows that it's added in there. And some people will criticize the King James because it was added in there and it wasn't in the oldest, most reliable manuscripts. So that's why verse 7 isn't here in the NIV. But if you really want to know what it says, you go to the footnote. And in the footnote, it will tell you what was apparently added later. Verse 8 says, By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all of these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusations, asserting that these things were true. So there's false accusations here. So not only do we see Tertullus trying to flatter Felix, but then he brings up all these false accusations. Sounds like an attorney's work, you know, that, that's taken place there. The false accusations were he was a troublemaker, he was stirring up riots, he was a ringleader, in effect, of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he wanted to desecrate the temple. 
None of those things were true about Paul. And of course, falsehood is to be done away with on our parts. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 says, Therefore each of you must put a falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. So we are given this directive that I started out with. We're to speak the truth. The individual who does not adhere to the teaching of the apostles has the spirit of falsehood. Now, what are those teachings? You know, everything that I mentioned in the beginning, those are the teachings of the apostles. If you might disagree with some of those teachings, okay, let's sit down, let's open up the Bible, let's go through the verses and see if, in fact, the apostles did teach those things. But in 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, it says, We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not of God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And so scripture is our guide on that. That's how we know what truth is. I mean, this is pretty simple stuff. Those outside the kingdom practice falsehood. Revelation chapter 22, verse 15, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, falsehood is in the world today. Do you guys recognize that? I mean, politically, do you recognize falsehood? Is there lying taking place out there? What about journalistically? Do you think that the mainstream, quote-unquote, media is telling you the truth about what is out there? What about governmentally? The border is secure. Have you heard that one? Coming from the government? There's 7,000 people coming up right now that are going to cross the border in the next few days. What about um, globally? Are they telling you the truth? Remember vegan grenades from last week? Uh, Greta, that deep fake that was there, but they're telling us we're all going to die because we've messed up the environment. Do you believe we are? Does the world, does the word say that we're going to die because it's going to get so hot, we're going to be flooded out and the ice caps are going to melt? No, it doesn't say that. It tells us the world is going to remain as is until it's destroyed. That's how we know that there's this spirit of falsehood in the world. They're telling us the world's going to end. We have to get out of here and get to Mars where we can die on Mars because of radiation and cold. You know, that's where you need to go. It's the spirit of falsehood which is out there. And then with the war of Israel and Hamas, how many of these sectors that I just mentioned are reporting falsehoods about the war? I don't know if you've been watching what's going on or the the protest, whether in France. Did you hear about the poor Jewish woman, young woman in France? A guy broke into her house, stabbed her, and then ran out and he painted, I think it was a Jewish star or something on her door. Just murdered her because she was a Jew. The Jews in Israel are telling everyone around the world, the leadership in Israel, come home. If you're in Europe... Wherever you are in the world, just come home to Israel. Leave where you are. It is not safe for you. The U.S. is actually saying that for American citizens as well. If you're traveling abroad, maybe change your mind. Don't go abroad. And the world is portraying this war. And I I told you this, and several sectors of the Christian community have said this, that the idea of the, the war in Israel, the Israelites, the Jews 
will be accepted in what they're saying in the first week, and then it will slowly knock off. And that's where it's going now. Pretty soon, it will be a huge call to stop the Jews from what they're doing. And they will be considered the enemy in all of this. For, uh, thankfully, we have the truth. Now, and the world is hating the Jews, but it's going to hate us as well. And I'm going to wrap this up here so we can receive communion. <clears throat> and they're saying first the Jews, then the Christians. And they say it several different ways. The persecution will come to us. It's coming to them first. They get the persecution first. It will come to the Christians next. And in the book of John, Jesus told us, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And, and so with this, we can walk away having some good cheer. John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So that's the benefit we walk away with. We've had the instruction, don't use flattery. Use compliments liberally, but don't use flattery. Don't misrepresent things that we see with falsehoods. Don't be a part of that. But be of good cheer because the Lord is going to come back and he's going to change all of this. And this is our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What we're going to do right now is Kim is going to come up and she's going to play a song. And as she's playing the song, uh, we are passing out communion, correct? I want to make sure we get that right. And so the men will come forward and they're going to pass down the communion through the rows. And once everybody has received it, please hold it. Uh, together until we can pray and receive it together and I'll give a few more words of instruction but as Kim is singing her song here and we sing along with her if you have anything you need to confess to the Lord now's the time to do it we want to take receive communion in a worthy manner which is humbly not full of pride recognizing Jesus and his sacrifice and what he did and how we are so unworthy, but he is the one that is so worthy. So as the song is being sung, just turn to the Lord, if nothing else, and give him thanks. Kim? Okay.